This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Esther. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Esther chapter 9. And as you make your way to the ninth chapter of Esther, I should first take a moment to remind you that this book provides us with the historical record of the way in which the Lord enabled and empowered a young lady named Esther to save the Jews who were living there in the land of Persia from the evil plans of a man named Haman. I'll remind you, Haman was not only an Amalekite, he was an anti-Semite who wanted nothing more than to exterminate the children of Israel. And after convincing the king to give him permission to carry out this act of genocide, Haman sought spiritual wisdom from the soothsayers and the astrologers there in Persia in order to determine the right time to begin his campaign against the Jews. And it was at that point in time when the pagan priests of Persia They cast the purr as they sought guidance from their false gods. Now, uh, we aren't told exactly how the purr was cast. They might have used dice. They could have used pieces of wood. They might have used strips of paper or maybe even bones. But, But regardless of the precise way in which the purr was being cast, the soothsayers assured Haman that the 13th day of the 12th month was the right day when he was sure to succeed in accomplishing his evil plan. Well, as we've already learned, Haman ended up being hanged after Esther exposed his satanic scheme. He didn't succeed. He he was hanged. And while it's true that the king wanted to protect the people of Esther from uh, their enemies, uh, it's also true that the decree of a Persian king, well, it was irrevocable. And he had decreed that it was okay for the enemies of Israel to destroy them. And with that being the case, well, the king decided to promote Esther's adoptive father by giving Mordecai his signet ring. And and by handing him his signet ring, it provided Mordecai with kingly power. And at that point in time, Mordecai then created a kingly decree, uh, which would then allow the Jews to defend themselves against the attack of the enemy. And it was in our study last week when we learned about the way in which this decree actually permitted the Jews living within the Persian Empire to protect their lives by turning the tables on their enemies, by destroying them, by killing them, and by annihilating all the forces of the enemy. Well, now here in our text tonight, we learn about the day when the enemies uh, actually uh, rose up against the Jews, and we learn how the Jews then overpowered the enemy. And and not only that, but we'll also learn about the way in which uh, uh, the, the destruction that had been determined by the purr that had been cast, actually turned into an annual celebration, which is still observed by the Jews here in the 21st century. And in light of all of this, we're going to consider how the people of God have actually been called to overcome evil with good. With this as the goal, let's consider the day when the Jews defeated their enemies. And if you would look with me here at Esther chapter 9, we'll begin reading there at verse 1. Here we read, now in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. The opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them, because fear of them fell upon all people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and 
All those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we learn learn about the way here in which the Jews ended up overpowering their enemies. And while it's true that the pagan priests of Persia assured Haman that his plan would be successful on the 13th day of Adar. Well, it's also true that the king of kings, the lord of lords, is infinitely more powerful than the false prophets of Persia who used the pur to make their prediction. And listen, it's in similar fashion uh, that the palm readers and the astrologers who here in the 21st century try to tell us our future, well, listen, they're at best phonies who are simply cashing in on the fears of superstitious people. And and, and if you're superstitious and you think you're going to get help from a palm reader, um, think twice. You know, I'm not superstitious. I am a little stitious, but but I'm not superstitious. But... uh, but with that, I, I still don't see a point in going and, and looking to you know, predictions about the future from fortune tellers. Listen, at best, they are just ripping you off. And at worst, they're mediums who are communicating with demons, and they're communicating with demons who want to deceive us. That being the case, we would all do well to steer clear of those who would deceive us in these sorts of ways. I like the way that Moses put it in Deuteronomy chapter 18. It's there where he declares... When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Now from this we can see here that the Lord was preparing to punish the the people of the pagan nations by pushing them out of the land of promise, and the reason why was because they were actively engaging in the worship of demons. Uh, One evidence of this is seen in the fact that they sacrificed their children in the fires of Molech. We call it abortion today, but back then they would actually, you know, sacrifice their kids by putting them into the fires of Molech. And not only that, but the Lord was also punishing them for practicing witchcraft and for the way that they were following the instructions of the soothsayers as well as those who were interpreting omens. They were also communicating with demons as they spent time with their mediums and their spiritists. And what's even more is that they were attempting to connect with their dead relatives through those who claimed to have the ability to call up the spirits of the dead. Now, as we consider all of these pagan practices, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the Lord was punishing those nations because, you know, they refused to repent of all of their demonic divinations. They refused to repent, and clearly, you know, the Lord had given them opportunity to repent, but they wouldn't. And so the Lord then, uh, as he prepared to punish the pagan nations, the Lord then also warns the Israelites here that after they settle there in the land, that they too would be punished if they started engaging in the same practices. Please trust me when I tell you that soothsayers and sorcerers are an abomination to the Lord. He doesn't mince words here. 
He tells us straight up that these people are an abomination to him. And whether we're talking about mediums or spiritists or, 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 or those who conjure spells and call up the dead, the Lord has promised to punish those who consort with evil spirits in all of these various ways. And at the same time, listen, it's also important for us to realize that those who are communicating with demons are just being deceived. That's what the devil and the demons do. They deceive. And, and you know, whether you're an enemy of God and rejecting Jesus Christ or whether you're, you know, a Christian in the church, the, the, the devil and his demons have come to steal and kill and destroy. They just want to destroy us with deception. You know, Satan is the father of lies. That's what Jesus calls him. And, and so, you know, the people who think they're on Satan's side and these sorts of things, it's like you're hanging with a deceiver. So might as well join the winning team by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, Haman was deceived by the pagan priests of Persia. He was on their side, and yet they still deceived him. Haman was deceived by the pagan priests of Persia. And in the same way, those who seek information about the future from the pagan priests of the 21st century, they end up being led astray by the deceptive doctrines of the devil. That being the case, it's important for every Christian to realize that those who are looking for information about the future, you know, we, we, we have to look to the Bible. <laughs> the Bible tells us the truth about the future. Sadly, though, there are, there are those who are still looking for information about the future from tarot cards and palm readers and horoscope writers and fortune cookies and these sorts of things. And yet they're just deceived by doctrines of demons. Those who connect with spirits through Ouija boards and psychic hotlines, they're being led astray by the evil spirits who are trying to destroy us. In order to further understand my concerns, you should know that, you know, spiritism is becoming more and more accepted within Christian circles. And you might not know this, but it's not uncommon for Christians to read their horoscope. As a matter of fact, there's a YouGov poll that was conducted last year, which revealed that 22% of those who identify as Protestant Christians believe in astrology. That's nearly a quarter of those who claim to be Protestant Christians, and yet they believe in astrology. It's amazing. Not only that, but there are also Christians who are beginning to embrace the divination of tarot card readings. And while I realize that those who engage in this form of divination are quick to insist that they're using destiny cards, they're Christian. You know, because they use Christian terminology and, and, and these sorts of things. No, they're not. They're not Christian. Destiny cards are nothing more than tarot cards with Christian pack, you know, repackaging. That's all it is. It's the same deception, but just dressed up like Christianity. What these Christians are failing to realize is that those who seek spiritual guidance through astrology or divination, these, these destiny cards and these sorts of things, they're going to be deceived by the doctrines of demons. And with that being the case, we would do better to, to seek divine guidance that comes from the holy word of God so that we can receive the wisdom that we need to stand against all of the evil schemes of Satan. 
in order to further make my case, let's continue to consider here the way in which the pagan priests of Persia misled Haman as they cast the purr. And if you would, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 9, beginning there at verse 5. Here we learn that the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Asphtha, Poratha, Adla, Aridatha, Paramashatha, Erisai, Eridai, and Vajazetha. You know, you know all those guys. The, the ten sons of Haman. It's like Haman had nothing better to do than just think of the, the hardest names to pronounce in the world when he had these kids. But uh, these ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Now, here in these verses, we learn about the, the way that the Jews defeated their enemies. And as we consider this defeat, which occurred on the 13th day of Adar, it's important to remember that this was the same date that had been picked by the Pur 11 months earlier. That's right. It was during the first month of the year. That's when the Persian astrologers cast the Pur for Haman. And it was at that point in time when these pagan you know, priests arrived at this date, which uh, was yet 11 months away at that point in time. And as the enemies of the Jews waited for the 13th day of Adar, I have no doubt that they were all like kids waiting for Christmas morning. The reason why is because they had been given permission to plunder the wealth of the Jews that they were prepared to kill. So, so these people, these pagans, they're, they're thinking we get to kill the Jews and we get to take their money and we're all going to be rich because of it. They couldn't wait for the 13th of Adar. Well, rather than plundering the people of God, the enemies of Israel were punished for their genocidal plot. And while the pagan priest promised that this would be the day, that this was, was the, the perfect day for the Jews to be purged from Persia, it was the enemies of Israel who were slain with the sword. Well, I have no doubt that they were waiting for the, the, the windfall of wealth that would come to them on this day. Well, they quickly realized that their fortune tellers were completely wrong about this day. From this, we can see that demonic diviners and apostate astrologers really can't provide us with godly guidance. The reason why is because God is the only one who knows the end from the beginning. When it comes to what's going to happen tomorrow, when it comes to what's going to happen in a year, when it comes to what's going to happen in 10 years, please trust me when I tell you that AOC doesn't know. And all the people who are predicting, you know, the, the climate change catastrophe and these sorts of things, they don't know. Listen, the, just, just look at how many times the weatherman is wrong. They, they can't tell you what's happening this Friday, let alone what's happening in 10 years with the weather. Give me a break. And listen, if you want to know what's going to happen in the future, if you're really that concerned about it, seek the wisdom of God. God is the only one who knows the end from the beginning. Now, this is not to suggest that the horoscope is always wrong. I'm guessing that some of us who have read our horoscopes have seen that, wow, that was right on. You know, It said this, and the next day that is exactly what happened. I have no doubt that there are those who have called into the psychic hotline and heard Miss Cleo say, this is going to happen, you know, and it happened. Listen, the fact is this, a broken clock is correct twice a day. At the same time, 
The same broken clock is also completely wrong 1,438 minutes every day. So just because it might be right a few times, the the fact of the matter is, is that chances are you've got demons who were there and they went and tried to work all that out so that you get duped into thinking that this is the best way to learn about the future. Don't fall for it. Trust me when I tell you that those who seek the guidance of New Age diviners are going to be misled the majority of the time. And those who try to speak to the spirits of dead relatives, listen, you're going to be deceived by demons. They'll mimic, you know, grandma. They'll mimic grandpa or whoever you're looking to to speak with. Yeah, they'll mimic them. And you'll be duped into thinking that you're communicating with some dead relative when in reality you're just being deceived by a demon. Those who will not repent of these practices will end up receiving the same punishment that was created for the devil and his demons. And with this as the focus, I want to consider the way that the enemies of Israel ended up being executed. And so let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 9. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 11, where we read, On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? Shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Here in these verses, we learned about the way that the enemies of the Jews were executed according to the king's decree. And not only that, but then on the next day, you know, Esther's asking if they can go, you know, and run the same drill on the next day. And probably one reason why is because a lot of the enemies went and hid once they saw that, uh, that they had been defeated. Some have criticized Esther for making a request which seems to be absent of mercy. And yet it's important to remember that these are the same people who were preparing to exterminate every Jew. These were the people who were calling for the genocide of the Jews. And they wanted to murder the Jews from the smallest baby to the oldest among them. Therefore, what Esther was asking for was completely just. It was a just judgment, which was fully deserved. In similar fashion, listen, there's coming a day when the Lord will condemn everyone who refuse to repent of their sins. And while it's true that the mercy of God is currently available to those who will repent and trust in Jesus Christ, it's also true that the righteous judge of heaven and earth is going to show no mercy to those who refuse to repent of their murders and their sorceries and their sexual immorality and their thefts and so on and so forth. Now I should remind you that the everlasting fires of hell were actually prepared for the devil and his demons. That's what Jesus said that the lake of fire was prepared for the devil 
and the fallen angels. And yet those who choose to follow the doctrines of demons, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire according to the just judgment of Jesus. And with that being the case, we ought to encourage every unbeliever to repent. We ought to encourage every unbeliever we know to trust in Jesus Christ so that they can escape this justice so that they can receive the mercy of our Messiah while it is available. At the same time, we can also rejoice in knowing that those who trust in Jesus will uh, rejoice with our Redeemer forevermore. And we see a, a picture of that here in our text tonight. And so if you would, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 9, beginning at verse 16. Here we learn that the remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th. And on the 15th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. Here in these verses, we learn about the way in which the evil scheme of the enemy ended up becoming the basis for this brand new holiday. And just think about that for a moment here, because the purr, which was cast by the pagan priests, actually predicted the purge of the Jews on the 13th day of Adar. And when all was said and done, the enemies were the ones who ended up being purged from Persia, as the Jews then were able to celebrate on the 14th day of Adar. They, they celebrated their victory there on the 14th day of Adar. And, and according to this account, you know, they were not only resting from the battle that happened on the 13th day, but they were also rejoicing and feasting. They were sending gifts to one another. And, 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 and as this spontaneous celebration began to catch on and spread throughout the land, Mordecai decides to make this an official holiday. I want to consider his decision, which was re recorded here in our text tonight. So look with me there. We'll pick up uh, Esther 9 at verse 20. Here we learn that Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. Here in these verses, we find Esther's adoptive father, Mordecai. He's officially identifying the 14th and the 15th day of Adar as this new annual holiday. And while it's true that this all began with a satanic scheme to exterminate the people of God, well, it's also true that the Lord enabled them to overpower their enemies. And as a result, well, there was not only reason to rejoice there in the land of Persia, but there was also reason to turn this into this annual celebration so that they might continue to commemorate this occasion which was basically centered around the, the salvation of the Jews from their enemies. But that being the case, you know, the only thing left to do was to choose a name for this new Jewish holiday. With this in mind, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 9. I want to begin reading there at verse 23. 
here we learn that the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, uh, uh, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast pur, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail, They should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time. That These days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. That these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Here in these verses we find the Jews, they're decidedly naming this new holiday Purim. And that's interesting because this nomenclature was based on the Persian word pur, which was pointing to the practice that Haman employed when he sought the pagan priests to pick the day on which the the, the people of God would be purged from Persia. As a matter of fact, purim, it's actually the plural form of the Persian word pur. And so it's like he's saying purrs, right? This is multiple purrs. This is Purim. And seeing how pur is actually the, the pagan practice by which the Persian astrologers sought the guidance of their pagan gods, well, then there should be no doubt in our minds that the Jews were actually making a mockery of Haman, and they were making a mockery of the priests who actually cast the pur uh, at the point in time when this day was picked. You know, the 13th of Adar was picked by the Persian priest picking the pur. You know, say that fast. And, and, and when all was said and done, the Lord gave the victory to Israel. And so they celebrated with a new holiday called Purim. You know, per, you know further proof that this was all a, a, a name that was based on mockery. Well, uh, the proof of my point can be found in the fact that this celebration actually includes little cookies called hamantashen. Hamantashen, and it's literally Haman's ears, and and it's these these little you know you know cookies, triangle shaped cookies that kind of look like ears, and they're filled with little red jelly, you know, for the blood. Yeah, Haman's ears, they're delicious. Clearly, this this was all a mockery of what the enemy had tried to do to them. And with all this in mind, we can see how the people of God were able to turn the evil scheme of Satan into an annual celebration. How incredible is that? It's in similar fashion that we've also seen how the church has used annual pagan celebrations for the purpose of sharing the good news of our Redeemer, Jesus. Now listen, I get it. There are some Christians who are convinced that the church should simply hand these days over to the enemy. Like this was the enemy's design, just give it to him, right? There are believers who have followed in the footsteps of Mordecai too, who, you know, who have decided that they're going to use what the enemy intended for evil by turning into something that actually glorifies God. 
And, and, and chances are there's some here tonight who are of the mindset that now this is the enemy's design, give it to him, just leave it alone. And there's others here tonight who are thinking, no, we can take this and use it for the glory of God. I'm guessing we've got people on both sides of, of this issue here tonight. And I'm not here to try to tell you what your convictions ought to be about these holidays. I, I simply encourage you to follow the convictions that the Lord has placed on your heart. If you have a conviction that it's wrong to, to engage in any of these you know, pagan traditions and you're just opposed to putting up Christmas trees and painting you know, Easter eggs and these sorts of things, if this is something that, that you just feel like you can't be a part of, then don't. Don't do any of it. But there are those who think that they can take these things and follow in the footsteps of Mordecai and Esther and say, we're going you know, to take what the enemy meant for evil and use it for the glory of God. Well, that's their conviction as well. I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 14. There he declares, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Clearly. Sorry, I went a little chosen on you there. Started adding to the word of God. But, uh, all right. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let him, uh, not him who does not eat, judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, the debate was over whether you could eat meats offered to idols or not, or whether you have to attend the Sabbath service or not, and these sorts of things. And they, you know, there, there were Christians who were getting into debates over all of these disputable things. And Paul was basically saying, stop it. You're making mountains out of molehills. You're making essentials out of non-essentials. We don't need to do this. We don't need to divide churches over whether you can put up a Christmas tree or not. If you think it's wrong to, don't do it. You know, I, I personally am completely opposed to any decorating that gets undecorated within a month. Just got no time for it. No thanks. You want to put it up? Go for it. Have fun. Now, if you're putting up a Christmas tree and celebrating Nimrod... Now we've got something else to talk about here. That would be sinful. But listen, every Christian is going to have their own conviction about these things, and God is able to help them to, if they're wrong, be corrected and to adjust. And if you have a conviction that the holidays are pagan and therefore always sinful and irredeemable, abstain then. Abstain according to your God-given convictions. And at the same time, you should also respect the Christian who sees these holidays as an opportunity to spread the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have no idea how you can take an Easter egg and make it mean Jesus, but apparently some Christians can, so have fun. Much like Mordecai, who turned the purge into Purim, we would all do well to realize that the Lord is able to take something that the, that the enemy meant for evil, and he can use it for his glory because to the pure... All things are pure. Now, I've heard Christians also take that verse and use it in ways that is not biblical. Because to the pure, all things are pure doesn't mean that the pure can take something that's impure and make it pure. 
It means that those who walk in purity are going to seek the things that are pure. And so we have to be careful because those who insist that we can use seasonal celebrations for the glory of God, well, they should also be careful to realize that there are many pagan practices that cannot be redeemed. For example, there's no way to redeem the pagan practice of child sacrifice. You can't church that up. Impossible. There's no way to redeem the temple prostitution that occurred at at the pagan temples. There's no way to redeem the conjuring incantations that they sang as they called up the demons that they were serving. You can't redeem those things. So you can't say, well, to the pure, all things are pure, so I'm going to sing these devil songs. To the pure, all things are pure, so we're going to go, go back to temple prostitution. Nope, that's, that's not a biblical argument. So we have to be careful. Whichever side that we fall on here, we have to make sure you know, that, that we are actually walking according to the truth of God's word. And to grasp my point, let's continue to consider how the purge became Purim. Uh, and, and if you would look with me again here at Esther chapter 9, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 29. Here we learn that Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the, uh, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Azurus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Queen Esther and her adoptive father Mordecai using the full authority of their positions there in Persia. And they use that authority to confirm the details surrounding this new holiday of Purim. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to remember here that this annual holiday was designed to commemorate the way that the people were saved from certain annihilation. And while it's true that this holiday was called Purim, uh, which is, remember, the plural form of the word pur, well, it's also true that this celebration had nothing to do with the Persian practice for which it was named. In other words, Esther was not directing the Jews to celebrate Purim by spending time with pagan priests. Nope. Was it called Purim? Yeah. Is that multiple purrs? Yep. Did it have anything to do with going and and, and meeting with Persian pagan priests to find out the future? Absolutely not. Nor was Mordecai encouraging them to celebrate Purim by by, by seeking guidance from from Persia's false gods to, to find out, you know, the fortunate days of the future and these sorts of things. No, it wasn't that at all. Purim was simply a celebration and a commemoration of the way that the Lord had saved them from their enemies who had cast the pur to pick the day to purge the Jews. They were commemorating the victory that God gave them over the enemy. We should also notice that this letter, which was sent to all the Jews living in the land of Persia, It was a letter which was written with words of peace and truth. That word peace, which is found there at the end of verse 30, well, it's translated from the Hebrew word shalom. And so this celebration of Purim was a celebration of the peace 
that the people of God enjoyed after their enemies were destroyed. And I love that because it makes me think about the celebration that we're going to enjoy at the marriage supper of the Lamb once we are saved from our enemies. There's a peace that comes along with that celebration of being in the presence of the king. And of course, I'm referring to the king of kings. This letter was written in peace. And I pray that it fills our our, our hearts with peace as we consider the day when we will stand in the palace of our king, celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb. We should also notice that this letter was written in truth, which is to say that this letter was, was trustworthy, this, this letter was reliable, it could be believed. At the same time, that word truth found there at the end of verse 30, it speaks of the truth which is received by divine instruction. Now with this in mind, I want to consider the contrast between Haman, who received instructions from the pagan priests who cast the purr, and Mordecai, who received divine instruction from the king of kings and the lord of lords. The information that Haman received from the purr, the, the information that Haman received about the, the, the right day for the purge, well, that information was proven to be false within a year. W- within the time frame of a year, the instructions that Haman received from pagan priests was proven false. But here we are in the 21st century and the celebration of Purim is still celebrated on the 14th and 15th of Adar each and every year, just as the scriptures said it would be. So you tell me which one is more trustworthy, the words of pagan priests or the word of God? We can put it to the test and see tonight. The word of God is trustworthy because it is true. And we can celebrate knowing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And those who trust in him are granted access to God the Father. That being the case, I encourage you to realize that the the pagan priests of this world, even here in the 21st century, can't provide us with peace, nor can they provide us with truth. But those who will abide in the word of God will enjoy the peace that comes from God, the peace that surpasses all understanding as we live our lives according to the truth which is able to set us free. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus is the truth. Let's pray.